Our reading this morning is Matthew 13, 24 to 35. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, welcome, those of you who made it. I'm glad you're here. As Dan said, don't be scornful of those who walk in at about 45 minutes um, just because they forgot their clocks. Um, in about the mid-1990s, a book was published um, by two authors, Stephen Robinson from Brigham Young University and Craig Bloomberg, who is uh, currently, I believe, uh, professor of New Testament studies, or was, at Denver Seminary. The title of the book was, Why the Great Divide? Evangelicals and Mormons in Conversation. What is uh, interesting about that book, uh, among other things, is that they chose to engage the conversation. They didn't shout at one another from opposite sides. They decided to engage in conversation. It seems like engaging in conversation is really the only way to know the other. Wouldn't you say so? Whether it has to do with religious differences or individual differences, engaging in conversation is really the only way to know. While engaging in this conversation, uh, Craig Bloomberg uh, said there were certain things that became abundantly clear that were different between evangelical Christians and Mormons. Uh, Bloomberg writes extensively, by the way, about the parables. That's one of the things that he's well known for in New Testament scholarship. And he said, among other things, one thing that emerged uh, for me um, that was huge, was the Mormon doctrine of what you might call the great apostasy. 
The Mormon doctrine of the great apostasy basically is this in, in simple terms. After the last apostle died, at roughly 100, 120 A.D., the end of the church, as the apostles had envisioned it, ended. And from about 100, 120 A.D. until 1830, there was this great apostasy. What appeared to be the church was not. And of course, conveniently, if you happen to be part of Church of Christ of the Latter-day Saints, 1830 also is the date in which Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, received those golden tablets. So the premise of the Mormon church is that after the apostles died, there was this enormous gap where the true church did not exist. And it was reestablished with their founder, Joseph Smith. Now, of course, that's not something that I would expect any of you to endorse. I certainly don't. However, I think there's some similarities. So why do you go off the reservation there, Bob, and get so critical? Because, at least I know from my background, there were times where I thought we might be the only true church. And that there was this great apostasy, not only in my land, but in the world, and in the history of the church. Because we had it right. Now don't look at me funny, because you've thought the same thing, haven't you? Huh? Or maybe you haven't put it quite that way. Maybe you've said to yourself inside, or you've even articulated it on the outside, I don't think they're really true Christians. Right? There's something of the great apostasy in all of us. We think we know exactly what it is and what it is not. I, I begin that way because you can see why, right? The parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds and uh, the following parable, the mustard seed and the yeast and the bread as an analogy, are interesting parables because they're speaking explicitly about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this, okay? Using those three parables, you see the analogy concerning the kingdom of God. The major parable, the first one, the parable of the weeds, seems to be the one that plays out the best in terms of my line of thought, at least for this sermon. And you notice that the basic elements of the story go like this. While the master of the field and everyone who was a part of planting that field was asleep, the enemy subversively by night comes and sows weeds among the wheat. Here's the second part of the story. As things begin to come up out of the ground, the wheat and the weeds, this we know from first century agriculture in tares and wheat and different things that they would have planted in their soil, the weed and the wheat come up side by side and they almost look the same, at least early on. You can't quite tell the difference, but then it becomes apparent there is a difference. 
And when it becomes apparent that there's a difference, the wheat and the wheat have established themselves quite well, and they have quite a root structure, and they're high. But it's clear what the weeds are and what the wheat is. And so you know the story. The servants of the master come to him and say, look, there's weeds there. We didn't do it. The master said, oh, I know, the enemy did it. By the way, that, that was the first uh, sign of bioterrorism. You know, we worry about it today. It happened back then. The weeds also would sort of poison in some way the whole product, right? They would wrap themselves around the roots of the wheat. They said, let us pull them out. We'll just get it back to the true field. And he said, no, don't do that. If you pull it out, you might pull out some of the good wheat too. So leave it alone. And on the final day, uh, we'll pull it all up. And when we pull it all up, we'll take the wheat into our barns and we'll take the weeds and we'll burn them. Obviously, it's an image concerning the kingdom of God, an image concerning the final judgment that God will bring on humanity. So, let's get particular, shall we? In the parable, and this is always slippery, right? It's, it's an analogy, okay? So we make missteps, or we get too extreme with our analogy, or we go too far with the parable. But I think basically, we need to ask the question concerning the, wheat, the field. What's the, wheat, the field in this parable? Well, it looks like maybe the field is the church. As a matter of fact, early on in the history of interpretation, that was predominantly the understanding of what the field represented, the church. On the other hand, um, lots of people have questioned that. Questioned that that's the singular interpretation of the field. And other people have suggested, no, it's, it's larger than the church, it's the whole world. Right? Because the kingdom of God is throughout the whole world. So let's not just narrow it to the church. I read one person this week that said, you can debate this endlessly, but I'm not sure it matters which it is. That's an interesting take. It seems like to me it does matter. But it also seems like to me it's not absolutely clear so I'll just tell you up front what I do with it. I think the field is the church and the world. I've decided not to choose, right? <laughs> no, I mean, for good reason. Because, again, back to what I said, the kingdom of God is bigger than us, for sure. And it's bigger than the church, for sure. Uh, one of the famous uh, doctrines of the church uh, that has tried to grapple with this is a thing called the two kingdoms theory, right? And you can find it in a variety of places, whether Augustine or Luther or a variety of other places. And, and at a basic level, the two kingdom theory looks like this. There is the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of man or humanity or the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God 
are those who are called by God and those who are motivated by love of God, right? So their motivation is the love of God. The kingdom of the world might have some parallels, and as a matter of fact, it is parallel to the kingdom of God. And it might have some similarities, and then as a matter of fact, there are similarities between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The distinction, says this theory, is the major difference is the kingdom of the world is motivated by self-love. And sometimes that self-love is absolutely opposite the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's not. You've got two kingdoms, and they run parallel to one another. Among other things, this theory concerning the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world is that there's only one kingdom that's going to last. You get that, right? The kingdom of the world is going to pass away. The kingdom of God, and doesn't that seem so consistent with this passage? will reign forever and will be the final arbiter of justice. And clarity eventually will emerge. So there you go. There's an overview of the field. I think it's the kingdom of God and it's larger than the church. It's also the larger world. second part of the story is what I'll just call the spiritual lessons. So what are the spiritual lessons in this story? Here's one. Like the enemy in this story, our enemy is Satan. That's pretty clear. And like the enemy in this story, Satan is clever and he's in places that you don't expect him. And he sows seed when you can't see him. See, not all the activity of Satan is overt. As a matter of fact, I think I might argue that most of the activity of Satan is covert. He's not so stupid as to always be overt. So like the enemy that sows weeds at night, Satan attacks us. That's why the New Testament consistently speaks about Satan this way. Remember the passage in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, where it says that the devil comes as an angel of light to deceive? By all appearances, it looks like an angel of light, and it's the work of Satan. Or think of the other image that uh, you know and love so well. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, I want you to be on your guard. Right? Satan is like this wily, crafty individual who's trying to destroy you is the implication. I want you to be on your guard. I want you to arm yourself with the armor of God. And he gives you all these images from a Roman armor and weaponry. And he said, be vigilant, stand firm, be ready for the attack of Satan, because it's coming. So we know that Satan is out there, he's crafty, and he's secretive. We also know, in terms of spiritual lessons, don't, don't we know this? 
I, I think we do. We can't always tell the wheat from the weeds. Can you admit that? Or do you think you've got it? Just, just a gut check. <laughs> and sometimes we proceed with caution, right? We proceed with caution because of our inability to discern. We say concerning ourselves, well, we can't see the heart, and so we can't make the judgment. And that is so right. It's so right to be cautious and to be circumspect and not be judgmental because we can't see the heart. And not to execute justice in some way. Bring the hammer down because we can't see the heart. That's good advice, isn't it? But let me take it a step further. Jesus, the divine Son of God, who is said to know the hearts of human beings. That Jesus, who did not have our inability, but could see straight through it, that Jesus also did not execute justice. Did he? No, he didn't. That Jesus who we're supposed to follow. That Jesus walked his life with God on earth, spoke the gospel, continued to proclaim that a judgment was coming, but did not execute that judgment. Instead, he walked faithfully with God, and he died at the hands of injustice. We have a sordid history. Maybe you don't want to own it, but you have to if you're a Christian. We have a sordid history with executing justice. A horrible one. One that kills heretics and burns them at the stake and ties them up hands and feet and throws them off cliffs into water to die by drowning and impales them on poles and the list goes on. No, I didn't do it. But my forefathers did. Theologians that I have high respect for were instrumental in that kind of persecution. And all I can say is, oh Lord, have mercy. There's something else I can say. Oh Lord, don't let it be me. Now we have certain standards, right? We're not hanging people or burning them at the stake. 
but we have other ways. So I say, oh Lord, whatever those other ways are, don't let it be me. Um, let me make a word uh, of encouragement at this point. The enemy is clever. He divides us. Because we're sinful creatures, he actually has us do things that are in his best interest and not the best interest of the kingdom. And we've got to be careful. But the enemy is not sovereign. And the enemy is not omniscient. And the enemy of our souls and the church will not prevail. Because as we know from the New Testament, Christ will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we don't need to fear that even if we're complicit in some of the strategies of Satan, that Satan's will will be ultimately accomplished. It won't be. There's coming a final judgment where the weeds and the wheat are going to be separated and God's kingdom is going to come entirely and God's will is going to be done completely but as we wait we have one responsibility be faithful to the gospel now the conclusion um, I told John this morning um, when just we were here, I think. I said, John, you know, I'm, I'm taking a few days off for spring break. I leave tomorrow night, and I'll be back Friday. But I just wanted to let you know, um, it's possible that I'm going to stir some things up, and you're the one that's left behind. <laughs> I, I told Brenda, I said that to my wife, and she said, well, did he say, that's not the first time. <laughs> When I said that to him, he said, yeah, I know your cell phone number. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm giving you fair warning, okay? So grip the sides of your chairs or your wife's hand or something. Um, I want to begin by saying something. If you don't hear anything else, no, you've got to hear it all or it won't make any sense. But please hear this, okay? Please hear me straight. I really do believe the words of Jesus when he said that I am the only way. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear me? I believe that. Got it? You heard me say it. Now for the rest. God accomplishes his will and his ways in a variety of episodes in history that you might not consider to be the way you would pick it. 
Matter of fact, you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? By the way, we've only got one service, and I feel so comfortable not hurrying. So, <laughs> You remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of the people of God coming out of exile, right? They're being restored to their land. What you also may remember is a name of a man called Cyrus, who was a Persian king and sort of inherited the Babylonian Empire, what was left of it, and expanded it to the Persian Empire, and it was a great leader. What you may also remember in Ezra and Nehemiah is that it was Cyrus himself who called the people to go back to their land and promise them protection so they could establish the nation of Israel once again. Maybe you remember that. What you might not remember is that Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, made a prophecy concerning this very event. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah says, speaking of an exile, God will call his anointed one to reestablish his kingdom. And he named him his anointed one, Cyrus, a Persian king, a pagan. You know what you might also not know? You know what anointed one means right there in Hebrew? It's the exact same word as Messiah. God is going to raise up his Messiah, namely Cyrus to establish his kingdom. That doesn't mean it's the Messiah with a definite article. It doesn't mean it's an enduring title for Caesar for all time and that Cyrus is going to rise from the dead. But it does mean that God looked at a pagan king and said, Right here, right now, he's my Messiah, and I will use him. So, can we reflect on something else that happened many, many hundreds of years later? The words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Surely, in this historical episode, God's will was being done on earth right then, just as it was in heaven through a pagan king. There's another way to look at this if you're a doctrinaire kind of person. It's called common grace. 
It doesn't mean that Cyrus was a believer in the way a devout Jew was. It doesn't mean anything about salvation. Except for the nation of Israel, it's common grace. It means, in effect, that God is present, working God's will all over the place. And when you see it happen, even if not in the name of Jesus, even if not in the activity of the pure church, whatever that is, it's the common grace of God right here, right now. And I want to, in a broad sense, I know you could quibble with this, I want to call it the kingdom of God. Because I want to define the kingdom of God as the presence of God on this earth. If that's true, we want to be really careful, don't we? When we approach the parable of the weeds. We want to be really careful Really careful. When we look down the aisle, and we see somebody who doesn't, dis doesn't agree with us, and we see that disagreement as being huge, And maybe we see that disagreement as a manifestation in the life of the other of unfaithfulness. We need to be careful not to yank up what we think is a weed. Because we can't see clearly. And even if we did, according to this parable, yank up a weed some of the wheat might go with it so another statement I told you I thought the field was both the church and the world we need to be equally careful about yanking up the weeds in the world or the ones we think are weeds. I think the main word that comes to mind here is the word patience. Remember Paul's admonition to us when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Sometimes, we've gotten to the place that we want to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because I know exactly what it is and exactly what it's going to do and exactly who's in line with it, so I'm not ashamed of it, and I become belligerent and blind to the activity of God all around me. I must simply 
exercise the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch for the kingdom of God to emerge. That is all we're called to do, my friends. Not to be disparaging and judgmental, but to exercise the grace of the gospel everywhere we are and watch God work. So, um, Saturday, I spent mostly the entire day just across the river in the state of Kentucky. And I was there um, to bury a friend. My friend uh, was a sheriff in Trumbull County, Kentucky. He and I were boyhood friends. I mean, childhood friends. I mean, from the womb kind of friends because our parents knew each other that well. We didn't have a choice. We were chosen for each other. That kind of friend, you know. And we were good buddies uh, growing up. And my friend Tim Coons was crazy. He was crazy as a loon. And I loved him. And he was a great sheriff. Um, and I, I was honored to be there with them uh, to preach at his funeral. But at that funeral, there were lots of people, and I was surrounded by police officers. Matter of fact, I joked when I got up that I was sitting between two officers of the law, and I wasn't really that comfortable with it. The first time I'd ever been between two police officers. It just felt kind of ominous, you know, like I'd done something wrong. But at least I wasn't in the back of a patrol car. Um, My friend Tim, he loved God. He expressed it a lot differently than I did. Some people who knew him might have thought, they might have thought I was preaching him into heaven because I wanted it to be true. I wasn't. I wasn't because God's the final judge. And I know with all the sinfulness was his and all the sinfulness that's mine, we both knew that Christ was our only hope. It it was an honor to be there. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase, a sea of blue. That's what it was. There were just officers everywhere from multiple counties and the state police and lots of fanfare. And I, I was listening to their stories about my friend and I was looking at this, this sea of officers And it occurred to me I 
thought to myself, um, they do work that not all of us do. My friend was the kind of guy who was first on the line. He uh, would always go in first. And I thought to myself as I looked at them, I thought, when they do their work, and when they do it the right way, we're seeing the kingdom of God. And then I thought, you know, when a teacher next week, when spring breaks over, teaches and works with a child or a, a student who's older and a little more rebellious, and they love them deeply, and they do their best, the kingdom of God is there. And when a social worker walks into a home that is full of chaos and dirt, bed bugs, and lack of food, and she reaches out to those folks, the kingdom of God is there. And when a doctor reaches out his or her hand and does their best to produce healing, the kingdom of God is there. By the way, you, you notice I haven't said a single thing about Christians? I didn't intend to. I'm only talking about vocations. I'm only talking about people who are living the kingdom of God even if they don't believe in the kingdom of God. We underestimate the power and the presence of the kingdom of God when we constrain it by saying it is only in the presence of those who believe. It's not, my friends, it's not. It's everywhere. It's the common grace of God. Honestly, i got to be truthful with you. It, it's hard to choke over this next one. It, the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Might even be in the presence of a politician. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure, don't you think so? That the kingdom of God is present in churches all over this city who are really different than us. I, I want to suggest one more thing. The kingdom of God, two more things. <laughs> <clears throat> 
is present and thoroughly, thoroughly shot through secular organizations. As far as I know, there is nothing at all religious about Mother Hubbard's cupboard. But the kingdom of God is there. And not just because we're participating in it. It was there. And we recognized it. And here's the final thing. John, you can work this out all week. Don't you think the kingdom of God is present in the activity of other religions? Can I circle back to what I said at the beginning just to remind you? I believe Jesus' words. But I also believe that the presence of Christ and his kingdom is everywhere. So the kingdom of God, not in its fullness, the kingdom of God with all of what we would call inaccurate doctrines about God is still present in all of these places. Can you go there with me? Can you open up your heart and open up your mind and be in conversation with people who are so different than you? And identify the activity of the kingdom of God among them? I hope you can. So I'll take it just one step further and make it really provocative. That's why I think interfaith dialogue is extremely important. Interfaith dialogue. People of different faiths talking to one another about their belief in God. There's two reasons it's important. One, because you don't know unless you're in conversation. Two, you can't always see the invisible activity of the kingdom of God unless you open your eyes and pray to see it. I don't know what your associations are like, right? I don't know all of them. 
I would suggest that some of you uh, live in a bit of a cocoon and your only friends are people who believe everything you believe. And there's some of you who live in the secular world, but in terms of friendships, you still live in the cocoon. And there's some of you who live in the secular world or live in the church, and you don't live in the cocoon. You got friends of all kinds of beliefs and no belief at all. And in the context of all those associations, here's what I want to say. You can identify the kingdom of God. And you can celebrate it. And you can engage with it. Participation without being unfaithful. You can. Because it might be a weed, but it's your not, not your job to yank it up. And you might be surprised. But no matter, let's ask that God would open our eyes to the activity of the kingdom of God all around us. Not to lose our identity, my friends. You get it, don't you? I'm still who I was before I started talking to you like this. I'm not losing my identity, but I'm trying to identify the activity of God in the world. Will you join me? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of grace. We don't just need grace because we're sinners and um, can't be righteous enough to inherit eternal life. We need grace because, <laughs> because we're silly and because we can't even see ourselves. And because with all the best intentions, we make things worse. So we thank you for grace. And we pray that that grace will be abundant and free in our life. And you will help us without losing our identity to identify the kingdom of God all around us and to celebrate it when we see your kingdom come and your will done on this earth and to join in it without losing our identity. We know, Lord, that when you were on this earth, you were criticized for being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. We know you ate with people that, according to the standards, you weren't supposed to. And we also know that some of those people began to follow you. So we pray that you will help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Give us the grace to see ourselves and to see our world. And make us instruments always of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.